Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The new world order that emerged in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 held out the promise of a more peaceful and prosperous future for citizens across the globe. Values espoused by the one remaining superpower, the United States, were adopted by its former rivals, and even those that clung on to authoritarian political systems bought into the idea of globalisation, an integrated world of shared interests in which advantages would be enjoyed by all. In recent years, that optimistic vision has given way to concerns about a world that appears increasingly unstable, and one in which globalisation took a severe knock in the two big electoral shocks of 2016 the Brexit referendum in the UK and the election of Donald Trump as US President. A new book by Thomas Wright, a director of the Brookings Institution, a think tank in Washington, seeks to make sense of the dramatic changes we have witnessed over the past five years and to plot a course for the future. All Measures Short of War argues that the United States needs to continue to play a leading role in the global order in defence not only of its own interests, but of advancing peace and prosperity across the globe. And I'm very glad to say that the author of All Measures Short of War, Thomas Wright, joins me in studio. Tom, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tom, the subtitle of your book is The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. You see American power properly wielded as an influence for good in the world. Um, I I think many people may be citing some of the US's more uh, disastrous interventions, the Iraq War, for example, uh, would question your premise. Yeah, no, it's an it's a totally fair um, question, and I think it sort of depends on what you what you look at. Um, you know, there's been U.S. has not been a perfect superpower by any means, and there's been many uh, mistakes. But the point I think I would make is that overall, if you look at you know the past twenty years or even the last seventy years from World War Two on. Um, that what the U.S. did with its leading leading position in the world was to build uh, something that actually uh, worked for the vast majority of countries. Uh, the United Nations uh, system of security alliances that has, that has basically kept the peace uh, in Europe and Asia, an open global economy that's allowed sort of trade to occur, um, imperfect progress toward democracy and human rights. Um, and when we look back at the last... 15 years in the Middle East is sort of a, a negative story, but there was positive stories in Korea, in Japan, in, in, in Europe as well, uh, throughout the uh, Cold War and afterwards. And I think when you look at that in totality, the international order that we've had since World War II is, I think, pretty clearly the the uh, most desirable order that's existed over the last 400 years or so. If you look at that 70 years compared to any other 70 or 20 year period, it compares favorably. So it's not to whitewash sort of the US record or say um, that the, you know, the US hasn't made um, mistakes, but just that overall, if we're asking whether or not it's worth preserving this international order that's sort of US led, I think we would want a very good idea of the alternative to say that actually the current system is completely flawed and should be cast aside. Sure. Now, you, you begin the book by explaining how the idea of convergence took hold in the 1990s, and this was to be the basis of the long-term stability and, and prosperity for the world. What is convergence, and, and why did so many people place so much faith in it? Yeah, I think after the Cold War, um, when when we saw the rise of globalization and 
countries sort of traded with each other and we saw this unprecedented period of prosperity. Uh, there was an assumption that all of the countries of the world, including Russia and China, were converging on the same sort of model of liberal international order, right? That over time, uh, they would all see it in their interest to uphold uh, the status quo, the international economic order, um, you know, the basic geopolitical uh, status quo that existed uh, in Europe and Asia and other types of international institutions. And they may disagree from time to time about how to share the burden of that or how to respond to specific crises. But overall, what united them would be more important than what divided them. They would focus on terrorism, nuclear proliferation, climate change, other transnational issues rather than territorial differences. And that, I think, really was the end of, you know, for a while of geopolitical competition. You know, countries weren't really squaring off against each other with basic differences in how the world should be organized. What I think's happened in the last sort of, since the financial crisis, uh, has been sort of the unraveling of that expectation of convergence. And instead, we've seen significant divergence where uh, Russia and China have very different visions uh, of, uh, of how the world should be organized. Globalization and the open global economy economy really lost its allure for many people uh, because it was seen as crisis prone rather than offering sort of a pathway to prosperity. Uh, you know, the Iraq war and then the failure of the Arab awakening really ended any hopes of uh, positive reform in the Middle East. And now that seems to be unraveling. And so the idea that we were sort of on the right track as a global community, I think, has come apart. And we've seen this increased contestation about what the world will be like. And that's sort of what the book is about. It's what that sort of geopolitical competition for influence will look like in an age when we're still interconnected, interdependent and globalized. And you mentioned China there and Russia, but China's a very interesting case, isn't it? And you explain in the book how at a global level, China is actually probably operating at a more cooperative level, perhaps, than it, than it ever has been. And the Paris Climate Change Agreement would be a good example of that if you look at China's um, very positive stance in Paris compared to the disruptive role it, it played at the previous climate talks in Copenhagen. But on a, on a regional level, China is behaving maybe more aggressively and assertively than it, than, than, than it has done for some time, for example, in the South China Sea. So what's going on there? Yeah, it, it has this, um, this, this sort of a dichotomy, I guess, on the global level. Um, it is, I think, more status quo oriented. It, it does want some change. You know, It wants more of a say in the IMF and international institutions and, and, it, and it worries about certain things uh, in the global order. But by and large, it doesn't have a, a huge agenda for change, I think, and certainly not one that it will impose by force. But at a regional level, it does, I think, have a problem with the way East Asia is organized. It, it wants an enhanced sphere of influence. It resents sort of these U.S.-led alliances with Japan, South Korea, and, and Australia, and others. Um, and it wants to sort of have a more Sinocentric and mercantilist uh, system. And it's going about that not through using military force like the Russians are in Ukraine, um, but by using civilian vessels to impose its authority in the South China Sea, by building islands, by you know trying to weaken uh, the alliances in the region. And all of that amounts, I think, to a pretty significant change because East Asia, along with Europe, is one of the two most crucial regions in the world. And so if that fundamentally changes, I think that does change the global order by by uh, just uh, 
by default in a way. So it is, a, I think, a major challenge, but it's a regional challenge rather than a challenge at the global order. But ultimately, the global order rests on these healthy functioning regions. Yes, I think it's is it part uh, kind of a theme of your book, really, that the global order is underpinned by yeah. regional orders. And, and maybe we learn more about a great power's intentions by observing how it behaves in its own region than, than what it does, for example, when it comes to something like the Paris Climate Talks. Right. I mean, the climate talks are incredibly important, as, as is the IMF and, uh, and the World Bank and all these institutions. But ultimately, you know, what a country does uh, toward its smaller neighbors, whether it, ex- whether it respects uh, the you know, current borders or tries to change those borders by force, that's a fundamental sort of challenge in terms of the global order as a whole. And, you know, if you look back to World War II, really what, you know, made the world recover after after the war w- was the creation of these sort of functioning, healthy regional orders in East Asia and Europe. And that more than the existence of the UN or uh, international financial institutions, you know, set the foundation for cooperation that allowed those global uh, elements to emerge and to, to prosper. And I, I, I do uh, think that if, if those regional orders in East Asia and Europe unravel now, um, then the implications, the global cooperation won't continue, you know, because it will, it will just fall apart over time under the pressure of these regional competitions. Um, when you see it as inevitable that the US is, um, is a, a declining power that it would event- eventually be overtaken by a rising China um, as kind of the world's leading superpower, you don't necessarily see it like that, do you? No, I think the whole rise and decline thing is really, uh, I, I find it really unsatisfying just because maybe I spent too long uh, sort of just in, in, uh, uh, in political science where there was these crazy debates about how to define it. But, you know, basically when you look at it, what, what, when people measure rise and decline, they're relying on a couple of small metrics, uh, major metrics, but pretty crude metrics like defense spending or GDP growth. And ultimately, they're very broad. They don't really tell you very much about uh, the health of the national economy, whether it's crisis prone, how those resources are being used, um, you know, what the defense spending is actually on, um, how that relates to specific crises or problems that countries may confront and the type of choices that they make. You know, if you look back in before World War One, and you were predicting the outcome of the 20th century, sure, it was important how countries were growing, but it was equally or more important the decisions that they made in Berlin and in London and Tokyo and in Washington. And ultimately, you know, a certain set of countries made fewer mistakes than than other countries, and they sort of emerged as stronger as a result. And so I think when we look at it now, you know, I actually think the U.S., um, you know, is losing ground a little bit to China in certain areas. It's gaining ground maybe in others. Um, it's certainly rising vis-a-vis Russia. That doesn't seem to matter too much. Because one thing we've forgotten is that declining powers can actually cause more trouble than rising powers, right, because they're dissatisfied and they're worried about the future. And that's what I think we've seen to some degree in the Russian case. So I try to look more at, you know, I say, well, look, there's a lot of countries that are competitive in this situation, and we need to look at the advantages and disadvantages they have, in particular sort of strategic 
uh, theaters and in potential crises and problems, and that we shouldn't sort of spend too much time agonizing over whether over a 20-year period there's a rise or decline, because if we look at the past, we've often gotten it wrong before. And just to pick you up on a, on a point you just made there about sometimes declining powers, and they, if, if they're declining, for example, economically, it can, it can trigger actions, maybe more aggressive actions on the international stage than in order to, to reassert their, the authority of their leaders in some other way. Does that mean we have to be really careful about, for example, actions like sanctions against Russia? If you weaken the Russian economy, do you force Vladimir Putin actually to act in a more aggressive manner on the international stage in order to, to maintain his own credibility at home? Yeah, I mean, it is a risk. I think it's also a risk, of course, not to impose sanctions because you're basically saying that, you know, aggression or territorial aggression expansionism has no cost. And so I think there is a there is a risk with Russia about pushing it into a corner. Um, but there's also a risk of, of sort of encouraging it uh, to, you know, to be expansionist. And so um, I, I think the Obama administration, you know, there's lots of of criticisms that can be leveled at it. But I think that's something that President Obama was acutely aware of when he was designing the sanctions. So they they decided not to go for the swift sanctions that would actually, those are the banking sanctions that w- could have the effect of collapsing the Russian economy. And they, they didn't impose those, you know, cutting Russia off from financial markets because they worried about boxing him into a corner. But they did impose other more targeted sanctions which had a punitive impact but they didn't believe would sort of leave them with no recourse other than major conflict. And so that that is something I think that they try to manage. Um, but it is, a, it is a, I think, a key dilemma. Yeah. And about Russia, I mean, there, there was a period there, as you mentioned in your book, from, I think, 2008 to 2012, when Putin um, had stepped aside as president. He had served his, his term limits and Dmitry Medvedev was president. And he um, um, was much more open to the idea of of, of uh, convergence, if you like, and of, of um, Russia playing a, um, a cooperative role in the world. Was there an opportunity there? Was that a lost opportunity or was it always the case? Putin was waiting in the wings. He was never... He was never really into this idea anyway in the first place, was he? He's more of a spheres of influence kind of... He has more of a spheres of influence view of the view of the world, doesn't he? Um, and it involves Russia's sphere of influence and the West should should butt out. Is, is, is that a fair... Yeah, you know, I think so. I mean, Medvedev is interesting. You know, he's a Russian nationalist and he didn't really like the West. But I think there's, you know, there's a huge difference, though, even that, even given that, there's a big difference between him and Putin because he, I think, was open to... Um, he was open to modernization of the Russian economy and reform and structural reform to have Russia integrate more into the international economic order um, and to see that as a pathway for Russia's future. And Putin, I think, was very uh, wedded to the old system based on corruption and, and sort of oligarchs and others. And structural reform would have destroyed that for him. So I think he he never really countenanced serious economic reform which ruled out many different sort of strategies for for him and for Russia and meant they sort of had to go a more nationalistic um, route. But I also think you're right that he he also ideologically just uh, had a greater skepticism of the West. Uh, Medvedev was skeptical, but not nearly as skeptical as Putin. So Medvedev signed on to the Libya intervention and uh, Putin was aghast at that and thought that it was a big mistake and, and criticized him for it. Um, I think the Obama administration, you know, they tried to engage Medvedev in the in the now sort of much maligned reset um, precisely because they thought that if they could empower him, 
he may be able to sort of displace Putin or have his own center of power and um, that would uh, that would mean that he would continue on in office and um, but once Putin came back um, I think largely for reasons of his own and um, that all fell asunder and so uh, I think the effort was made in in the case in that case but it did it did fail it didn't work ultimately you have an, an anecdote in the book about Bill Clinton warning Boris Yeltsin that uh, you know saying I know you're a Democrat but this guy isn't you know I think yeah. isn't that right um, but um, I suppose the question then is for the West is how you deal with Putin and um, I mean there is an argument made I know it's not your argument but I'd be interested in teasing it out made that um, that the best way to deal with Putin in the interests of maintaining stability in the world is to um, accept that Russia has a sphere of influence. And in other words, it's a mistake, for example, for the EU to go and, and try to bring Ukraine within its within its orbit when, you know, it has always her in in Putin's worldview, I suppose you'd say Putin, Ukraine has always been part of the, the Russian, you know, world, if you like. Um, what do you think of that view that, that, you know, if we deal with Putin on its own terms, you know, we might come to a better sort of um, mutual accommodation? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's understandable and it's a certainly a reasonable point of view, but I do think it's problematic for a few reasons. One is that, um, you know, these countries have, Agency. I mean, they have they have the capacity to make their own decisions. And um, if a country like Ukraine wants to become democratic, you know, to I mean, it was democratic, but to actually consolidate its democracy, get rid of corruption, you know, modernize its economy, and have partner with the EU, not even join the EU, not even join NATO, but simply have a trading agreement. Um, it's quite something for us to say that they're not allowed to do that, you know, that we will basically repress those efforts because Russia has expressed anxiety about what that would mean. And that's, I think, essentially the situation in 2013. This association agreement with the EU, uh, you know, was not membership. NATO membership wasn't on the table. And they wanted to try to modernize and their economy and gravitate toward uh, Europe. And, and Russia had a big problem with that. And so I think that's, you know, th- that's just a moral question, I think, that's raised. Um, but more um, specifically, if you look at Russia's traditional sphere of influence, it includes the Baltic states, you know, it includes countries that are already in the EU, are those to be sacrificed now in some way? And if not, and if we draw the line, there's a big question in spheres of influence orders about where you draw the line and if that line is generally respected. Um, And the final thing would just be if Russia does ultimately get full control of Ukraine, you know, that changes the dynamic in Eastern Europe as a whole. And we've already seen sort of, unfortunately, one of the effects, I I think, of this end of convergence is the erosion of democracy in Central and Eastern Europe and, and, and of democratic institutions. And I would worry that if you if you allowed sort of an enhanced Russian sphere of influence, that that d- democracy wouldn't necessarily be safe on the other side of the line, that that would prove contagious and there would be increased interference of the kind that we've seen. And so I think it is, um, you know, it does raise some pretty fundamental questions about, about the future of the EU. And I think the other thing, just the final thing, is that Putin's, ultimate goal here, I think, is not just the end of NATO, it is also the end of the EU, because he doesn't like the notion of sovereign equality. He doesn't like the idea that small countries have the same say as as large countries. He doesn't like the spread of um, sort of Europe-EU values, you know, to the the East, um, not, not sort of you know, pro-American or anything like that, but simply sort of the rule of law and those things that pose a challenge to uh, to alternative models. 
Um, and so he is actively trying to undermine it, I think. And so um, the book tries to make the argument that we should sort of recognize that and push back. Um, and I don't think that ultimately sort of, you know, coming to some sort of deal with him, I think, will be very will be very difficult because I think it would have a cost and I don't think it would necessarily, you know, be sustainable. I think ultimately he would try to go for more. I mean, you, you argue in the book that Putin's big fear is this, this liberal democracy succeeding, you know, in neighboring countries and eventually... Um, to, to the point where um, it undermines the authoritarian regime that, that he operates in, in Russia. I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you think motivates Putin in, in defending the kind of system that he has? Is it a philosophical view that a very big country like Russia, and you sometimes hear this from authoritarian rulers, that, well, democracy is fine, you know, in your part of the world, but it wouldn't work in this kind of vast country that, that you know, um, for you to maintain order and so on. Do you think it's a kind of philosophical defense or is he simply defending crony his own his own himself and his and his cronies who have accumulated kind of vast sums of wealth i think it, yeah if you look at his history right from when he was a kgb officer all the way through i mean there just isn't a democratic bone in his body like he has never been someone who has any sort of affinity or support for um anything that resembles um western democracy or or systems like he sees it i think largely as a largely as a trick or, 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 or an illusion. And he, he is much more wedded to the old sort of czarist um, model in Russia. And so I think for him, it's not even that it wouldn't necessarily work here. It's just that he, um, he's just a, you know, he just comes from a very, different, a very different place. And I think you're right, he does, I mean, he does have a fear um, that, uh, all, as he sees it, all of these revolutions that have happened in Eastern Europe and elsewhere are all he thinks American plots essentially that the you know that the, the US is actively destabilizing these countries and that any protesters are largely paid agents of America or of the EU and, and he wants to sort of push back um, against that and so I think that and that he worries that ultimately that will spread um, to Russia as well and I think that for him is a much more um, uh, significant fear, actually, than NATO troops on this border or anything like that, because I think he actually, you know, he's redefined, when he came back to power in 2012, he redefined Russian military doctrine to actually define war as these political types of war. And I think he sees the U.S. as having waged that against him for some time. Okay, now we um, we can't talk about the global order, obviously, without looking at the Middle East. And um, the, the event, of course, that was supposed to bring the Middle East into this interconnected world of liberal democracies what was the Arab Spring. Why do you think the Arab Spring failed so badly? Oh, uh, yeah, great. I mean, great question. I, I you know, I, I think we don't know for sure, but I think one of the one of the major reasons was reasons was that um, you know these are fundamentally divided societies, and when when um, this old system was bound to break down. I think there was no question about that. I mean, everyone was expecting it to fail um, over, no one knew when, um, but for the last 10 years, they thought it was unsustainable because all those leaders were very, very old and there had been no real successions and the succession was going to be very uh, difficult. And so when it happened, uh, you know, by surprise, essentially it's starting in Tunisia, um, there was a lot of hope that there could be um, a movement toward democracy, but then uh, the regional powers really got their teeth into it and this Sunni-led coalition with, with Saudi Arabia, the UAE and others and worried that um, the openness in, in countries like Bahrain would uh, lead to Iran taking over and Iran worried about the opposite and also saw an opportunity 
And so I think the main reason it failed is it actually changed from a revolution to a regional Cold War where these major regional powers uh, contested with each other inside these states uh, for supremacy. And uh, the worst incidents uh, obviously was in Syria where they feel this horrific civil war um, that has taken place. And, and Assad, I think, you know, obviously played a huge role in that. It was a peaceful revolution at the beginning. He put it down, killed all the peaceful protesters and then and then the regional powers got involved and we're left with what we have uh, today. Um, but I think it did essentially end, you know, hopes of positive reform in the foreseeable future because it's it's very hard to see how that gets um, resolved. I think ultimately it needs there needs to be you know, re-establishment of the balance of power and then some sort of arrangement with Iran, uh, between Iran and uh, the Sunni states about non-interference and majority-minority rights. But we're a long way uh, from that at the moment, unfortunately. And I think one of the interesting, many interesting aspects of your book is, you know, with um, Donald Trump's election, um, there's been a lot of talk about American isolationism and so on, and and Trump set himself out as a non-interventionist president, whether that's the reality or not, I suppose, is another question. But you illuminate the extent to which America's withdrawal from the Middle East really um, began under Barack Obama. It was kind of almost a key driver of his of his foreign policy. Maybe that's overstating it. I, I don't know. But do you think Obama's um, approach to the Middle East has kind of proven to be a mistake now? Yeah, I think, you know, I think Obama, I think understandably when the he did two things I think that were understandable, but I think in retrospect were mistaken. One is that it, he was always convinced that the Iraq war is a mistake, and so he decided to try to disengage from that. He thought the U.S. is overinvested in Iraq. And um, he particularly disengaged diplomatically um, around 2010 when there was sort of crucial uh, elections. And I think that was a. I think that many people in the Obama administration now would acknowledge was a mistake because it, it essentially removed um, the opportunity for a leader that was non-sectarian and pushed them toward uh, Iran and that then pursued a very aggressive line in northern Iraq that that partly led to the destabilization of that part of Iraq and the rise of ISIS. So. So there was that was one sort of mistake that, in retrospect, I think they would acknowledge they would change. But the other one um, is after the failure of the Arab awakening, when the region was sort of in free fall, um, he said, look, we should just define the things we really care about, you know, terrorism, uh, nuclear proliferation, security of Israel, supply of energy, and protect those, and not worry too much about everything else. Um, and he thought that you could essentially, you know, redefine or right-size America's interests in the region. And the problem was that the instability that flowed from the from the uh, failure of the Arab Awakening and Syrian civil war was exacerbated by that sort of we, you know, narrowing of U.S. interests, and that had contagious effects that you know, move well beyond Syria. I mean, it, it destabilized the region as a whole, but it also destabilized the EU with refugee flows um, that undermined uh, the EU. And so um, I think they, um, they underestimated the contagious effects of, of the civil wars in the, in the region. And I think it did sort of raise this need for, uh, you know, for the U.S. to play a role in trying to uh, aid others to create some sort of equilibrium or new status quo. And over time, the opportunity to do that has has narrowed dramatically because the situation is so dire that there are very few uh, good options. 
And, and what's the solution now? Do you think to the ongoing instability there? I mean, is there is there a useful role for the West in the Middle East? I mean, there could be an argument if there's a century of Western interventions have have shown that the West should, should just stay out of there. Yeah, the problem with staying out is, I mean, I think so. There are no good options, but I think if you look at the trade-offs of, of staying out versus getting in. The risk of getting in is that you you know you get dragged into this you you potentially get dragged in militarily, um, and that there's no um, there's no real solution. The risk of staying out is that um, you let it burn, but that it's horrific and that the effects are so contagious that they destabilize everything around it. And uh, w- both of them, I think, are, are legitimate fears. But the but the the effects of contagion. Uh, as we saw with the refugee crisis, are real. You know, like they do, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. So the 30 years war to which it's often compared ended up killing a third of the Central European population back in the 1600s. So, you know, so these sort of conflicts, particularly religiously fueled, can be really destabilizing. Um, So I think that's the sort of the case for staying in. It's not that that there's an obvious... Uh, solution here is that you want to sort of limit the risks of contagion and limit the damage and and it's not necessarily by getting involved militarily it could just be um it it could be by acting in a humanitarian or diplomatic way or having military power on a very limited basis and in reserve uh working with others but it's there's no doubt that it's incredibly complicated all the more so because of the Russian intervention of course and of course in, in Syria that is um, that is the reality now that has to be dealt with on the ground and how, have you any ideas how do you deal with that reality um, for example Bashar al-Assad there um, there seems to be some maybe possibly a consensus emerging even in even among in, in, even in the US um, that that the future Assad does have a future in Syria and that we need to engage with that idea or do you think do you, would you accept that reality? Um, yeah I mean the, uh, you know Assad is a is a horrific sort of leader who's done incredibly terrible things but if you set that aside um, the major and I think that is the major downside of keeping him in but it, and he's fueled I mean he created this conflict uh, and he he's fueled it, and he fueled the rise of ISIS, and in some ways facilitated it because he saw it as a better alternative um, than sort of the peaceful uh, protesters. Um, but if you set all of that aside, the primary geopolitical problem about accepting Assad um, for the region is that it empowers Iran because uh, Assad's primary partner um, is Iran, even more so than Russia, and that uh, you know Iranian control. Um, Syria does essentially change the dynamic in the region. Um, and that is sort of the thing that the Trump administration, which, um, you know, is, is a bit, all, it's not a bit, it's very much all over the place on this, but that's one of the major problems that they haven't been able to figure out is they, they like Assad, they like Putin, but they supposedly don't like the Iranians and it's impossible to square that circle. I think in the, 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 I don't have a great sort of solution in, in the book, but the one I do offer, which I think is, is the only one really on the table, which is very imperfect and has lots of problems, is to you know, push back against Iran, uh, work with uh, the sunny states to try to reestablish a balance of power. But then that once that's accomplished, say to the sunny states that we are going to have to talk to the Iranians from a stronger position about uh, about a new equilibrium in the region, and that would involve non-interference 
uh, in these states. And so you would you would uh, you would essentially pivot from that stronger balancing of Iran uh, to engage them in a broader political level. And once some sort of once some sort of stalemate or equilibrium has been established on the ground, um, that I think is something. You know, there's no indication that the current U.S. administration is going to do that. They just want to push back against Iran, but no end in sight. And the problem with that is that that empowers, you know, the Saudis and the UAE to do what they're doing on Qatar and to increase the, you know, their involvement in the war in Yemen, uh, all things that are, I think are quite destabilizing and actually could make the situation worse. Because someone might think the, the sort of fear of Iran seems kind of odd almost when you, when you consider they... Um, the role that the Saudis play in the world, and we probably need Iran there as a counterweight to Saudi influence. Well, I think that the, I mean, the Iranians are sort of expansionist in the in in the region, and they do, um, you know, the Sunni states are, are desperately worried about Iranian hegemony, and uh, and Iran has played a pretty nefarious role in in Syria in particular, and in other parts of the of the region. And I think if you if you allow them to just take over the region you would see this response that actually would result in a very long-term conflict because they're not strong enough to sort of take over, but they are strong enough to create all these problems. And so I think, you know, to me, the role of the West and the role of the U.S. in particular is to is to try to dampen that regional Cold War, to dampen that conflict. But to do that, you sort of have to, you can't just, you know, be... Uh, completely non-interventionist, you have to sort of have some notion of of what that ultimate settlement would look like. And I think that involves sort of pushing back in the initial instance, but then having a more of a detente approach at a later stage if Iranian behavior changes. And that would also include being tough on the sunny states in terms of, you know, emphasizing that there are certain things that they would do that are actually you know, that actually would go too far, which the Trump administration has not done so far. They've just given them a, a blank slate, essentially. Okay, now, I'm just going to touch briefly on Europe. I mean, you've got a chapter in, in the book on, 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 on Europe, and we could spend the whole discussion talking about one crisis after another that the European Union has dealt with. But you, you have some fairly provocative things to say about um, the state of the European Union. I think you say, you say that Europe is doomed to a prolonged period of drift and, and introspection. And near the end of the book, you say that the EU is gradually disintegrating. Uh, is, do you think the EU is doomed? Well, no. I mean, I do. I am pessimistic, although I'm a little more more optimistic recently. But it's not a it's not a it's not a willful pessimism in the book. I mean, it's a regrettable pessimism. I, I think that what's happened in Europe has been five overlapping crises. You know, the eurozone, Russia, Ukraine, uh, the refugee crisis, Brexit, and now Trump. That all have negative synergies that have reinforced each other and I think have brought uh, the EU to the brink of, you know, disintegration with Brexit and also have put severe strain on it internally. And I think it's very hard for, you know, Europe to progress because there's such fundamental differences about what that further integration would look like. You know, the German Schäuble view, the Wolfgang Schäuble view is totally at odds with the French, Italian, you know, Irish view, which is also totally at odds with the Polish sort of more nationalistic Eastern European view. And it's there's no obvious sort of pathway out of that. Um, I think for the first time, and this sort of happened since I finished the book, um, the, the, e, the reaction to Trump in the EU, I think, has been pretty hopeful, you know, in terms of the 
the failure of populist movements in Holland, in, in, in France, you know, the rise of Macron, the hope of a renewed Franco-German engine, I think, do offer some prospects, but it's still incredibly difficult. You know, there's the, the Eurozone, the fundamental flaws within the Eurozone remain, and the solution to them is to complete the integration process. But it's but that's much easier said than done. That still looks to be almost impossible. And so I, I think that the, you know, Europe has essentially floundered, I think, since 2008 or um, I hope that will sort of change, but I think we sh- we sh- we need to, you know, rather than assuming that sort of a solution is around the corner, what I'm trying to do in the book is to say maybe sort of a, a, a fragile EU that's sort of introspective because of Brexit and because of all these other problems is just the new normal, and we need to, you know, not sort of take things for granted and also not assume that the U.S. can can just disengage, you know, because I think the U.S. does have a constructive role to play. Um, you know, for instance, in trying to bolster democracy and the rule of law in Eastern Europe, um, that it hasn't been playing recently, that I think just have a just have a price attached to it. And on Brexit, you say in the book that you think the the US should try to facilitate or, or do what it can to promote um, an outcome to the Brexit negotiations in which both the United Kingdom and the EU emerge um, in, in positions of strength. Um, do you think that's achievable? Well, I don't think this administration will really be able to do that. And I, I do think that the, you know, Brexit, I think it was an enormous, I think, I just think it was one of these acts of self-harm by, you know, uh, by a major power, by by the UK. This, you know, they have no real idea, I think, of how this is going to turn out and no real strategy. Um, I do think there's a way, if it was ever asked to, that the US could try to play a helpful role because the US has ultimately as an interest in a strong EU that's successful and works and in a good relationship with the UK and a strong UK that works. And I think there's no doubt that, you know, the, the US would, would want, you know, the, the successful administrations, Trump aside, because I think it's a special case, would think that Brexit is a big mistake. But since the decision has been made, it would be worse if, if, if it completely failed and there was a hard Brexit. And so... Um, so I think there's a constructive role to play, including on Northern Ireland, actually, where the U.S. can sort of be a, an honest broker of sorts or just, you know, try to, to, to give sort of tough love messages on occasion to, to London or, or, maybe, or maybe elsewhere on the negotiations. Um, but I think it's overall a very negative uh, development, but it's underway now and trying to limit the damage from that, I think, is a, is a, is a key task of, of diplomacy. And unless to give the impression that your book is a litany of sort of crises and, and uh, disasters in the world, you do offer um, prescriptions and and uh, um, you know a kind of course for the um, for, for the future. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a moment, but also want to ask you a little bit about Donald Trump. And I don't know if you saw Gideon Rackman's review of your book in the Financial Times. He gave it a really good review. Um, he did say though it it was clearly conceived um, of as of as a potential handbook for the for an incoming Clinton administration. Um, to, to what extent? Has the election of, of Donald Trump sort of turned, you know, the prescriptions and the, the projections, you know, that we were all making, I suppose, upside down? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's a fair, it was a fair criticism. I did finish it largely before the election, but I was able to return to it afterwards. And well, I sort of found when I returned to it that most of it actually was, you know, 95% of it was, uh, you know, just stayed the same or even more because, uh, you know, yeah, because the book is essentially about how the world's becoming more nationalistic and, and competitive. And I, I sort of assumed the U.S. would be pushing against that. I didn't totally 
get how much the U.S. would be consumed by those forces, you know. And but ultimately, I think the election of Trump, you know, wasn't entirely inconsistent, unfortunately, with the argument, which was, the, you know, that the, the, we've seen this deterioration in the international order, and Trump's clearly a part of that. Um, I, you know, I think that in terms of the prescriptions, you know, I, I think we ought to just say what we think sort of the best course of action is you know, regardless in some ways of the politics. Like, I, I, I think it would be a mistake to try to, you know, to to try to, you know, pitch a policy to Trump and say, here's how America first could work for the world. Because I don't believe that. I don't think it will <laughs> essentially work for the world. And I think it's better just to put out the, you know, the argument that, you know, that in my view would be the preferred uh, sort of course of action. Um, I do acknowledge that Trump's not going to implement it. I think it's unlikely. Although I think some people in the administration, might, you know, the more mainstream people like Mattis and others would be, but um, but I don't think he will. But I think ultimately, you know, he is to me more of an aberration than the, than the norm. And I think there will be a, a reversion to a more normal foreign policy after him. And, you know, I hope at that stage, you know, people may be uh, responsive to it, or as they think about what the alternative could be, that they may be, they may find it helpful. And do you advocate actually that the US should engage in something called responsible competition? Um, and what does that involve? Yeah, I think it means really that the US recognise that the world is increasingly contested, and that uh, there are fundamental questions on the table now that haven't been on the table for a long time. Um, but that rather than pulling back and becoming isolationist, which I think is always an option for a country like the, the US, and um, that the US should continue to engage and, you know, re- and try to repair, renovate the international order, also push back against, you know, revisionist powers and try to uphold uh, this system that we've had since the end of the Cold War. Because I think ultimately there are sort of two choices in offer. One is some version of what we've had in the past. Um, maybe changed, maybe reformed in some way. And the other is a much more nationalistic world that's much more mercantilist, much less open economically, where authoritarianism is on the rise and democracy is in the backseat and the US and Europe as well sort of define their interests very narrowly and sort of pull back. And and China has a you know increased dominance in East Asia and Russia uh, in Eastern Europe. And I think that world um, is objectively much less desirable. For one thing, there's much less cooperation, much less economic growth. You know, transnational problems will get worse and not better. And I think it will be more unstable. And so I think there is a case for sort of pushing back. But to do that, I think we need to recognize that the world has, you know, changed. And and there are, I think, you know, we're looking at the major challenge being the return of this great power competition rather than some of the sort of the transnational challenges that have defined the past, although they'll obviously remain. And and finally, just in return actually to Trump, um, in terms of his foreign policy, how, how do you view, because he, he's difficult to read, um, he's because of his inconsistencies in, in all kinds of areas. So he's, as I mentioned earlier, he kind of set himself out as a non-interventionist type president. And then yet he goes and he, he, he authorized a strike on Syria after a chemical weapons attack and so on. So just taking his foreign policy in isolation, um, what kind of trends do you see emerging and what, what do you think we can expect over the next three years? Yeah, I you know, I think the fundamental story of this administration is a structural incoherence between two forces. And um, I think you have to sort of, we all have to sort of recognize both of them when we're looking at it. 
the the first is is Trump himself and sort of the America firsters in the administration. I mean, he is, I think, a unique president. He's unique ideologically. He's a set of ideas that, you know, are totally at odds with the role America's played in the world since the 1940s. He's opposed to alliances, to trade, uh, to democracy, human rights, and as a, as a as a core pillar. And, and he does have some deep seated ideas. Yeah. We we sometimes assume that he has no ideas at all and that everything is off the top yeah. of his head. But you point out actually, you know, there are trends there. You can that go back many many yeah, years. Yeah, there's a very clear track record back to about 1986 or 87 of him sort of opining on all these things in a remarkably consistent way. Um, uh, he, so he's unique in that way, and he's unique temperamentally. He's unique in how he processes information. Cognitively, there's something fundamentally different about him, I think, in terms of how he reacts to people and, and various situations. And, uh, you know, he's a disruptor. And so I think that's one part of it. And the second part of it, which is in contradiction to that, is that the rest of the administration is largely dominated by mainstream forces that see him as an existential threat to the U.S. role, and they're coalescing to try to limit him or box him in or constrain him in some way and ensure that the administration is sort of normal. And, you know, Mattis, I think, is part of that. McMaster, Tillerson is sort of a special case, but he's sort of in both, but he's sort of in that camp as well. And... Um, that's why we see this inconsistency, I think. That's why sometimes we see them looking sort of normal and other times it all blowing up. And that tension will never be resolved. I, I don't think it will ever. There's no end point, no synthesis. He's not going to evolve. You know, it's just a, it's a, per, you know, the mainstreamers aren't going anywhere because it's too important and Trump isn't going anywhere because he's the president. And when he's not the president, then it's a different, <laughs> you know, totally different situation. So... Um, that's how I sort of think about it, that it's, it's you know, it's not, um, I think that we shouldn't underestimate his influence on his own administration. Uh, I do think it's not, it's not unfettered. And thankfully, there are these mainstream forces pushing back. Um, but he still is, you know, is hugely, uh, poses an enormous risk, I think, in a lot of ways. And I worry particularly about what he'll do in a crisis about things he may refuse to do that the U.S. would normally do, like upholding, the, upholding these alliances. And, and I think, he, you know, over time we'll see him play a, a pretty uh, crucial role and, uh, you know, uh, that, that could be quite destabilizing and that will really pose the challenge to these mainstream forces in the cabinet. Okay, well, Tom, your book is All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Retails in Ireland for, I think, about 26 euro. It's hardback. And um, I I have to say, they're weighty topics, but it's a really, really easy read. You know, it's a very good read. Um, And uh, thanks a lot for coming in to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much. This has been great fun. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.